podcast. Today we're talking to Katie Kitamura. Her previous novel, A Separation, was named Best Book of the Year by over a dozen publications and translated into 16 languages and is being adapted for film. Katie has written for publications including The New York Times, The Guardian, Granta, Bomb Magazine, Triple Canopy, and Freeze. She teaches in the creative writing program at New York University. In her latest release, Intimacies, an interpreter has come to The Hague to escape New York and work at the International Court. A woman of many languages and identities, she is looking for a place to finally call home. She's drawn into simmering personal dramas. Her lover, Adrian, is separated from his wife but still entangled in his marriage. Her friend, Jana, witnesses a seemingly random act of violence, uh, a crime the interpreter becomes increasingly obsessed with as she befriends the victim's sister. And she's pulled into an explosive political controversy when she's asked to interpret for a former president accused of war crimes. A woman of quiet passion, she confronts power, love, and violence, both in her personal intimacies and in her work at the court. She is soon pushed to the precipice where betrayal and heartbreak threaten to overwhelm her, forcing her to decide what she wants from her life. Thank you so much for being here, Katie. Thank you for having me. Thank you for the invitation. I read your previous book, A Separation, in nearly one setting. I couldn't escape it. I was one of those experiences where I didn't want to escape it. And so, you know, I was particularly excited to have the opportunity to read this new novel. Um, and I think what drew me to A Separation is also present here in Intimacies. And maybe you saw that thread yourself. You know, the key word here is intimacy. I think fans of yours become or already arrive to you as addicts of interiority. Um, you have this way of completely warping reality, but not by embellishment or exaggeration. There's this like almost metaphysical quality of being and being, you know, a very specific way in which as the reader, I feel fully inhabited by your narrators and the world you build around them. A lot of novelists have told me that their characters sometimes surprise them, which is funny, right? It's sort of like God saying he's surprised by, you know, his creation. Um, and because I feel you possess such a firm grip on your characters, I'm wondering if they've ever surprised you. Um, that's such an interesting question. I mean, first of all, thank you so much for those kind words. Um, I, I, I love, I'm immensely flattered and, and love everything you just said. I mean, it is very much what I'm, trying to do in in these books is to kind of bring the reader into the perspective and the point of view of the narrator and to kind of build tension and disclosure not through plot or even necessarily through action but really through kind of providing access to the consciousness and the movement of the minds of these characters so I'm I'm so grateful and appreciative of of your reading um, my books in that way. In terms of whether or not the characters have ever surprised me, I don't think I can honestly say that they have. I don't have that experience that writers often talk about where they say, you know, all of a sudden my characters were dictating, you know, the events and the terms they were saying, I wouldn't do that, I, you know, I'm not that person. And I've never really had that that experience exactly. Um, 
I've had almost the opposite where I've wanted my characters to do things and I've kind of, it's taken plotting and it's taken structure and it's taken things to get them to that point where it felt plausible for their characters. Um, I'm not sure if that really answers your question, but I, yeah, I have hitherto, I've not had that magical experience of having my characters stand up to me and say, I'm not going to go into that room or whatever else it might be. I think it's almost um, impossible is maybe too strong of a word, but inherent in what you do, it's sort of, it betrays the possibility of that, right? Um, I guess, so my next question is, would you even want that to ever happen? It sort of sounds like in your aunts that that is not a welcomed experience necessarily. It's it, You wouldn't be fulfilling um, your goals if that did happen. Is that fair to say? It's That's a really interesting question as well. I mean, one thing I will say is that I am and have always been very interested in trying to loosen the grip of authorial control on a project. I think that is actually something that I'm I think is important in a creative process and particularly I think in fiction which is so often feels like a one-to-one relationship between the writer and the manuscript to find ways of opening up that process is really important to me. I mean I'm doing that quite literally right now. I'm working on a novel that's in collaboration with two Swedish artists who are kind of together former artist collective called Golden and Senebi. And we're working together on a piece of fiction whereby they are providing some of the basic architecture and thematic elements of the book. And I'm writing in collaboration with them. And I'm kind of processing the inputs as they're giving them to me and then writing a chapter and giving it to them and they respond. And it's kind of working in that way. So I'm, I'm really interested in freeing up the process. I think I'm doing that in formal ways rather than kind of waiting for the mystical moment when the characters on the page escape me. But I mean, you know, I I think writing changes all the time. I think it would be, it's not only that it would be boring, I think it makes for bad fiction if your writing experience, if, if writing every novel was the same, then I think there's not that much of a point. And so I am always interested in trying to write each book in a slightly different way. And maybe that's apparent only to me and to nobody else. But but that is part of what drives me as a writer, for sure. On page 50, you write, the way we understood our own behavior shifted according to whether or not we thought we were being seen. How do you reconcile this, I think, very apt thought as a novelist, you know, given that a novelist's primary job is to see behavior? Oh, that's an... I... I think, do you mean the contradiction between how I relate to that idea of being perceived myself? I mean, I think, you know, one of the real differences for me as I've, I've, I've written more is you, I no longer have, at least for the time being, the sense that a novel that I write will not be read by anybody. And that's a shift for me. I think with my first book or two, I didn't necessarily know if anybody would read them or respond to them. Um, but I think with the separation and with intimacies, I, I did have the sense that there would be, even if a small, but that there would be somebody who would read it. I mean, as an example, I would say that um, Carlo Vakanalsgaard, who is my Norwegian publisher, he had published Gone to the Forest and I knew he would be reading a separation. Like I knew he would be reading my next manuscript. And that's that was different for me. I had always written in a kind of very innocent state in a way where I, I didn't think it was just between me and 
and the page. And I was never thinking about the reader beyond that in some way. But that is, I think, how you have to write. I think you have to write without worrying too much about the reception, um, you know, without worrying too much about how you're being seen from the outside. I think that's something you have to try to worry about when publication comes around rather than in the actual process of writing. Um, but, you know, it's an interesting question. I can see writers where, you know, you can you can feel that they're performing a certain version of their, their writing for the, for the reader, you know, they know that the reader has responded positively to X and so they continue in that voice or in that, you know, you can, you can feel that and that's, I think, when you fall into danger of pastiching yourself. How does it also play out, though, just um, as a novelist, right, and especially with, as I've previously described, your very specific way of interacting with your characters, you know, I'll, I'll repeat it again, the way we understood our own behavior shifted according to whether or not we thought we were being seen. I guess I'm putting you in this like omniscient godlike uh, role again with your characters. How are your characters being perceived by you and are they shifting um, being seen by you? And then I could, you know, translate that same question to myself as the reader. I am perceiving these characters um, and these people are shifting according to whether or not they thought we were being seen. I think, you know, when I'm when I'm writing and I hope this is will answer your question. I think when I'm writing, particularly in the first person, Mm -hmm. um, and even though there is a, a substantial gap between myself and and the character on the page. I think I really am trying to inhabit that character's point of view as closely as possible. So I think when you're writing third person as a writer, your experience is quite different. You do have more of that kind of creator complex, so to speak. But I think when I'm writing first person, I feel as a writer all the uncertainty that the character feels. And that's really important for me. That's what I want to get on the page is is my own uncertainty, both about the world and and my place in it, but also just about the practice of writing and the practice of putting words on the page and the practice of trying to fix an idea with language. All of that uncertainty is is mine, or I feel it to be mine, not simply my characters. Um, So I think I don't have that sense of the kind of I perceiving the character in that way. Um, But I'm really interested in this in the question of performance and the question of how we present ourselves depending on who is looking at us, whether or not we think we're being looked at or observed. Um, and that really is a string, especially through the last, that connects the last two books in particular. You know, A Separation is about a woman who's performing a part. She's performing the role of a grieving spouse, even though that isn't strictly speaking what she is and over the course of the novel what happens is that the gap between the role she's playing and who she actually is collapses um and i think in this novel initially what one of the things that drew me to the subject matter was the idea of the court as this kind of almost theater for performance you know it's it's a place where people make cases it's a place where people try to be as persuasive as possible and one of the contradictions that's so interesting is that what is at stake is something of enormous sensitivity and something where the question of authenticity is so important, but it is communicated really through these necessarily artificial mechanisms. So I think 
that idea of performance when we're aware of how we're performing and when we're not, because I think often we're really not, that's always interesting for me to think about. So I think that's probably my primary in into that kind of that quote. In in both uh, a separation and intimacies, you have narrators who are faced with that challenge of trying to understand their lovers. This is maybe the thing that interests me the most in life. Um, and it's not aligned with the, the cliche of, you know, love stories are the best stories or et cetera. It's more about the challenge of human behavior. I I don't know. It thrills me and challenges me. And I'm sure I'm not alone in this, but it certainly um, is a large part of why I'm so drawn to fiction. Um, you know, how to find satisfaction in never knowing someone else while spending all of life claiming to know each other or trying to know each other, at least. Um, so I, I guess when I was thinking about that, I was wondering, do you think it's the duty of the speaker or the interpreter to get the message right? And, you know, again, I'm thinking about you as a novelist and as a reader. And of course, I am also thinking about just our roles in, in this life. It's it's. So obviously the the way the novel Intimacies in particular is structured is that she does interpretive work in in the workplace, but then that kind of seeps over into her personal life and she's constantly doing this act of interpreting the minutiae of other people's behavior and in particular, as you say, the relationship of her. I don't even know really what to call him. He's a kind of... I've taken to calling. I, I don't know. He's not a boyfriend. I I don't like the term love. I don't object, like the term so lover. I, I was know. like lover. Oh, or gonna say lover? Yeah, I, I don't. I don't know. But you know, of this person that she's in a kind of early relationship with, and you know, one of the things I was definitely thinking about throughout the novel is the question of how how we make do with fragments of information in general, and that definitely came about because I was thinking about you know the deluge of news that we've experience that it seems to only be getting every heavier um you know how we navigate all of that how we navigate the fact that we have pieces of a narrative but very rarely the total full real story and so that's very much applies to her work at the court where she is interpreting on a specific trial but she really only has one side of the argument she doesn't really have full access to the entire trial much much less what actually took place um and I think in this novel, I wanted to think about what a person would do in similar circumstances with their personal life. So what has really happened is that somebody she's in the very, very early stages of a relationship with who is at the end of their marriage and is trying to reconcile and find closure in a in a long and complicated marriage that involves children. So on, on the one hand, all that this person has done is taken a little bit of a step back to figure that out before moving forward. Um, but obviously for the narrator who is experiencing all of this, she kind of falls into a state of obsession where she can't, everything has significance. Every text that doesn't arrive has great significance, which I think is a kind of state of mind that many, many people have probably been in in one way or another, and that's people who are sophisticated, who are rational, who are who are whatever, but still you can be you can fall prey to your own obsessions. And I think I wanted to see if it would be possible to kind of sustain almost a romantic narrative, really on very very little, really on just the vapors of of an absence. Um, so that was kind of one of the things that I was thinking about as I was writing. Um, 
as an interpreter, I think in her work, it's very important that she gets things right. And it's funny, somebody asked, you know, a couple of people have said to me, you know, she's, she's actually terrible at interpreting people. She reads people incorrectly all the time. And I think it's less that she's bad at reading people and it's more that she really understands how contingent people's personalities are and the fact that they are determined by context and that they change all the time. And so when she, I don't think the narrator experiences people as fixed entities. Instead, she experiences them as ever mutating. And that is the kind of wobbly ground that she's always trying to navigate in her personal relationships as well as her professional ones. Well, so you set up all of these pockets of potential violence in the book or sometimes literal violence, but um, continuously there's a lot of um, psychological and emotional sort of um, uh, pockets of violence, as I said. And um, your your narrator begins, you know, relationship with a man who's t- not totally sure she fully knows or can trust, as you as you've just described. She's arriving to the city in the aftermath of a, of a loss. There's this, you know, sort of moment that haunts the latter half of the book, in which a character is attacked in the streets. Um, you even note at some point that where death is hard to grasp, violence is made comprehensible. So I think the most obvious question to pull from you is if you think the potential for violence is inherent in intimacies, in intimations. Between people rather than in my book. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Well, I I mean, there are people in your book, so. (laughs) Yeah, 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 no, exactly. I mean, so I think one of the things that I experienced with this novel is when I finished writing it, I went back and I kind of had that thing of saying, well, what did I actually write? You know, let's, let's, let's take a look at what I've been working on for all these months and years. And, and, and I, and I had this realization that there was a startling amount of sexual harassment and sexual intimidation throughout the novel. It's a novel that has all kinds of unwanted intimacies within it. And, that's really where the title came from in a way is that I think intimacy is one of these words that we think of. It's one of these things that we're taught to seek out in our relationships with other people. It's kind of held up as only almost the ideal thing that should exist between two, um, two people in a relationship. But I think there are all kinds of intimacies. And as you say, there are some that have the capacity for great violence. I mean, intimacy is about proximity and there is a lot of violence in proximity. Um, so I, th- I think absolutely... One of the things that makes the relationships volatile is the fact that there is always that capacity for, if not necessarily physical violence, but also psychological violence throughout her relationships with these other people. And I think with Adrian, with her her kind of boyfriend, I think she's really not sure what is happening because there is a kind of violence in his his abrupt withdrawal from her life right like he kind of just disappears himself and and that is that is a kind of violence i think it's a severing of the ties you know the kind of violence is inherent to the language um so yeah absolutely that was that was central to how i wanted to think about the relationships in the book i think i'm also always interested in the way that violence can just completely tear the fabric of what we think the kind of facade of life falls apart almost instantly whether it is it is psychological violence or whether it is physical violence and and the fact that we are made we are forced to confront how contingent our lives are and we kind of live in this fantasy of this causative fantasy and then that that can fall apart very very easily 
Right. So, you know, that brings me to my next question. What do you think confronting this violence uh, repetitively in all these different, like, plot points and and contexts that you're placing your narrator in? What do you think it it does to her? Because it sounds destructive, but from the mood that you've set in the prose, it also felt like it thrilled her. Um, Or maybe it thrilled me as the reader. (laughs) I don't know the difference anymore. (laughs) It's the power of a Katie Kitamura book. (laughs) I I mean, she's fascinated, right? I think that's fair to say she's... She can't help but kind of come closer to to it. She seeks out a friendship with the sister of the man who has been assaulted or says he's been assaulted and, and she doesn't really know why exactly. Um, yeah, I think maybe it maybe it is that she's maybe it is that she's thrilled by it, um, or or that it exerts a kind of power of fascination over her that she doesn't fully understand and that leads her to behave in ways that she doesn't fully understand either. I mean, I think primarily in writing these different manifestations of violence in the novel, I was primarily trying to write a mood of destabilization where there wouldn't necessarily be anything within the plot or the action of the book that would feel that menacing or that destabilizing but all the time I wanted there to be the sense of unease and dread uh, well I guess both for the reader but especially for for the central character you know where she just would feel like she couldn't quite trust her own eyes where she you know she sees what she sees but she wouldn't be able to confidently say that's true or that is that is accurate or that is correct there's a scene in the novel in which three characters are in conversation, Adrian, Jana, and her narrator, and everyone's talking to each other while tiptoe around, tiptoeing around certain topics, all while mutually holding the shared knowledge of said topics. On page 78, you write, people behave with such conscious and unconscious dishonesty all the time, or perhaps this dishonesty was more concrete. Is dishonesty more of a gateway to intimacy than honesty is? I think in the case of that specific scene, you know, my character is one who has a tendency to hypothesize and she really lives inside her projections. That's that's where the, when you were talking about, you know, excitement or what thrills her, I think one of the things that whether she likes it or not or would admit it or not that thrills her is speculation, is projecting things onto other people and, you know, imagining what may or may not be happening. And I think in that particular scene she is thinking that all three of them are not acknowledging this fundamental truth which is essentially that you know this dinner has been arranged so that Yana can see her partner and decide whether you know whatever it is that she makes of it um but then she says is that dishonesty actually concrete I think she's in that moment, making that little pivot of saying, okay, I've come up with this explanation for why there's a strange atmosphere in the room right now. And it is because we are not acknowledging this thing. But then she suddenly thinks, well, what if it's actually about the fact that something has taken place between these two characters that I don't know about? Something has happened before I've arrived to this dinner party. Some kind of intimacy has been established and that is what is being concealed from me. So I think that's like an example of when this character, her capacity to kind of spiral ever you know she circles an event or an object multiple times and she comes up almost with a different answer with every turn that she makes around it so I think that was 
what I was thinking about when I wrote that particular line. But, you know, that question of like, is dishonesty more concrete? I think certainly dishonesty reveals a great deal when you're able to apprehend it. And in that way, it feels to me like a potential bridge to a different kind of intimacy, right? When we think of intimacy, we think of one that's laid out with honesty. You know, we think of um, pure uh, purity. We think of uh, everything all on the plate. Um, But is intimacy really brought up? um, And and while that certainly is, again, the, the general idea behind intimacy, there's something kind of interesting to me is again and I feel like this is a common theme in, in your in your text um, between what is not known um, and then when when it becomes known um, it's almost like knowing that there was a lie creates a whole other level of intimacy that the truth would never have brought does that make any sense um I think so. Um, I'm trying to, <laughs> yeah, I, I think so. I mean, as, as, as you're saying it, it certainly sounds true to me. I, I guess I'm trying to work out if I, if I manage to really, I mean, that is such a complex mm-hmm. idea, mm-hmm. but I think it is, it, it's such a complex idea, I, but I think it is true. Um, I mean, you know, one thing I will say is that it's interesting because people often refer to the narrator by, I think out of habit, they'll they'll call her a young woman. And it's, mm-hmm. it's, I see it in the write-ups of the book all the time. But in fact, she's quite explicitly not young. She, mm-hmm. She's, you know, heading into her middle age. She's a woman who, who's kind of in her late 30s. And so, therefore, she's a person who's used to the idea of people having histories. And this idea of pure total disclosure between two people is she's old enough to know that that is not a real thing that can possibly exist because there is no way to fully share the record of that many years with another person. Um, And I think towards the end of the book, there's a moment when she kind of thinks there will be these omissions in our histories that we don't, there'll be moments that we don't share with each other. And even so, is it possible that we ha- there's enough share between us to provide the basis for something to move forward? And I, I think in that sense, maybe there's some, some link between this question of dishonesty and this question of omission and the way that actually I think, I mean, I will add, I am by no means advocating dishonesty in no. relationships. No, I don't I think, think you in, are. But I think that privacy is really important in a mm. relationship. And mm. I think there has to be a space where any person can be can exist for themselves and only mm. for themselves. And, you know, mm. so obviously because I'm a writer and my husband is also a writer, that's something that is, there's quite a a designated area for that, right? Our, our work is our, our private space, you know, up until it's published. But while we're writing, that's a strictly private space. And that's a space where we are allowed to exist only for ourselves and not for the world and not for our children and not for each other. We're just with ourselves. And I think that is really integral to to any relationship is a possibility that you can have parts of yourselves that are that that are kept in reserve that are hidden from the other person and i think certainly that's something that i was thinking about in a separation and i think in intimacies that is that is a position that the narrator ultimately comes to quite naturally is this understanding that you know her her boyfriend who is you know in his late 40s there are vast amounts of his life that she will not know anything about um, but that that doesn't necessarily mean that they can't go on to have a functioning and possibly even happy relationship. 
Sure. I, I, I think, again, what's so thrilling about the kind of things that you not necessarily make possible, but um, tell truth to in, in both of these books um, is this very human contradiction. Uh, we want autonomy, but we want each other at the same time. Um, and it's that constant push and pull um, right between that, that also yeah. ironically pulls us closer together and pushes us apart. Um, this is, you know, the game, I suppose <laughs> we all play uh, willingly or not. The narrator bears witness a lot in this novel. In her mm-hmm. literal job, she bears witness to the trial of a war criminal. Um, in this context, bearing witness becomes almost unbearable at times. Uh, there's a moral weight to it. But then in another sense, she's forced to bear witness to her lover's ex-relationship. And she spends a lot of the time sort of trying not to look at it. Um, mm-hmm. This is arguably less about morality and more about self-preservation. Mm-hmm. On page 126, the narrator makes an observation between a painting and the idea of the painter, suggesting that the painter had not looked at the subject, but that the subject looked directly at the painter itself. Um, The idea was almost impossibly personal, and I realized the notion of such a sustained human gaze was outside the realm of experience today. My question is, is bearing witness an unavoidable fact of life or, or something you think one should strive to do is community care. I mean, I think the idea of bearing witness is a complicated one. And I think that one of the things that the narrator comes to understand is that there is no such thing as a pure instrument. So I think in the beginning of the novel, she thinks of herself as a pure instrument of the court. She is this body through which language is transmitted. Language goes from one side to the other and back. Um, But over the course of the novel, she comes to understand that not only does that language kind of leave a trace on her and have a kind of profound psychological effect on her, but also implicitly that she affects the language as it moves through her as well. And I think there is no pure position of witnessing. I think when we witness things, we bring all of our own history and our subjectivity to that act of witnessing. And that's something that the narrator has to confront. There's a moment when she's interpreting the testimony of of a victim of war crimes. Um, And in that moment, she finds herself wondering what right she has to speak for this person because she's literally speaking this person's words. And she has a sense that the language isn't capacious enough that it can't contain both her subjective position and the subjective position of the witness whose words she's interpreting. And I think this idea that, you know, it's a real quandary because it is a moral responsibility to bear witness. But at the same time, I think we have to be very aware of what we are bringing as we do that. You know, what are we bringing to that act? How are our own biases influencing that act? I think, you know, what does it mean ethically to witness if that precludes taking action? I think it's a really complicated thing. um, And that's certainly an element of the book. Um, And then, as you say, there's also the kind of flip side of that is also the kind of more intensely kind of inward turning question of self-preservation and and how you um, retain the integrity of your experience of self when so much of your work is tied up in witnessing these things that are happening around you. So one of the experiences that the narrator has is 
she is placed in a position of uncomfortable empathy. You know, she uh, empathy is again like intimacy, one of these words where we are very much taught to seek it out, to encourage it in our children, in ourselves. We are told that empathy is a kind of ideal of human human behavior. It's what makes us moral. It's what makes us human. All of those things. Um, but I, similarly, I think empathy can also really lead to a kind of dissolution of, of the self. And she experiences this thing where she almost feels as if she's been invaded because she comes to empathize too much with this war criminal that she's interpreting for against her will, despite knowing better, she still finds herself experiencing a kind of closeness to him that she doesn't want to have. And that is invasive. And so as an act of self-preservation, she kind of has to remove herself from, from the scope of the work because it's, it's, it's ethically too troubling for her. So I think I, I, that's a long answer, and I don't know that I've said anything other than it's very complicated. <laughs> but it strikes me that it's, it's, it's very complicated. And, and one of the things that I think we tend to think of witnessing as if it's, you know, much like interpretation or, or documenting or recording or any of these things, we tend to think that it, the action itself brings a perfect neutrality. But we know that there's no such thing as a perfect neutrality. We know that not only people, but institutions come with their own biases. And I think maybe that's inevitable, but part of the work that we're trying to do is to at least recognize that those exist. I, I mean, I asked you this at the start of the interview, but I can't help, it, it's still like ringing through in my in, in my head. It's just how do you negotiate, you know, for a book that is so very much about interpretation um, and uh, literally, again, we have the narrator who is an interpreter, as you pointed out, I'm just so fascinated by how you know, you've pointed out that it, it, you feel that it's not a novelist uh, in, the, in their best interest to be thinking of the reader when they're writing. And I completely understand with that. But at the same time, here is this here is this creation now. And, and there is this sort of um, life of its own that the book takes on um, after the fact um, that you have no control over. We, you don't know what the readers you don't know what the readers are bringing when they bear witness yes. to your stories. Yes. And I find that like I, I've had an emotional response to this book. I don't know if you can tell, um, and it, it's a beautiful and a beautiful one. But so I don't know if everyone will necessarily have the same emotional mm -hmm. response, the same quality of response. And I'm just wondering how you negotiate that yourself um, as as the community. You are the interpreter in so many ways um, as the novelist. Um, and then I am the one interpreting it too. So I'm, I'm just wondering how this plays out for you in your relationship to fiction generally. I, I mean, I, I love that question. And I, you know, I, I guess like one way that I can respond to it is that, you know, I'm primarily think of myself as a reader rather than a writer. And I know so much how much I bring or don't bring <laughs> to, to, to the to the to the act of reading. I mean, I think sometimes sometimes I I read a book and I don't understand it, and I pick it up ten years later and I completely understand it. Or conversely, I read a book and I think it's a work of utter genius, and six months later I pick it up and I have no idea how I fell into that particular interpretation of 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 the of the text. I mean, I think it's been really. I mean, this is one of the I suppose. Uh, I was going to say perils as simultaneous perils and pleasures of publication is that you do learn a lot about what you've made. You learn how people are reading it and people often respond to elements of the novel that are not the thoughts, you, bits that you thought they would respond to. But I think, you know, it is true what they say that 
a book is made in that relationship between the reader and the writer. And I think what I wanted to try to do with this book is actually write something where th- there's a kind of invitation to the reader to step step into the book. Um, because the book actually does, I think, hold back quite a lot of information in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's, it, it's not, um, you know, it's it's you know in order to understand the kind of psychological state of the narrator for example you're not given a kind of lengthy backstory that will then illuminate all of her behavior in the present that 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 question of right. why she is the way she is is really open to interpretation and it's really up to the reader to really decide and and you know obviously that's that's to some extent it's a risk i think the more straightforward thing to do would be to write some backstory for her and put it fully on the page and say I don't know, not not this, but, you know, the version of this happened in her childhood, therefore she behaves in X way. And, and then that actually is kind of gives a reader causality and a narrative. But I'm actually more interested in books that don't do that for me, where I can kind of step forward into the text and I can discover things as I'm reading. You know, I find that I feel bored when I know what a book or a film or a TV show or whatever, when I know what they want me to feel. If I can see they want, right here, they want me to feel sad right here they want me to feel exhilarated right here they want me to feel a little ambivalent that feels to me if, if there's only one way one emotion that the reader should be feeling and that every reader should be feeling that that feels to me like a less than completely compelling piece of work I like the I like the books where I don't know what I'm supposed to be feeling um and I have to figure that out and I actually have to take you know the quite difficult steps of forming an opinion about a piece of piece of work, which isn't always easy. You know, I mean, but I think that's what makes fiction engaging in some way. That's I don't know of, if I've answered your question. I think yeah. I just ranted on and no, on. No, there's everything you've said is eloquent and articulate, and I don't know how you do it. Um, it actually ties into my last question. Um, you know, in this book, you reference a story, and I'm going to butcher the pronunciations here, but uh, from ancient Greece, uh, Zeuxis and help me in which there's a contest to determine the best painter and in it Zeuxis creates a painting with such realistic grapes a bird tries to swoop down and attempt to pluck it you know it obviously brings up this conversation about authenticity or truth in art I, I guess I'm wondering if you determine the quality of art by how well it mimics reality how well it mimics mm-hmm. truth right that's because obviously those two things can sometimes feel very different um the question of I I think what I'm interested in trying to write is the process by which people apprehend reality so I feel like the only way that I can get reality onto the page is by showing a character trying to pin that reality down you know I think it's it's nothing about it is a given I think it 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 reality comes into being from points of view it comes into being through subjectivity so I think for me trying to capture that reality happens through trying to capture a particular subjective position and that is often a position in which reality seems constantly to be dissolving but to me that feels like the most accurate description of what it means to be in in the world you know I want to think about what it means to be to exist in the world what does it mean to be to be touched by the world that's that's what I really wanted to try to write about in this in this novel in particular. You know, she's a character who is 
grieving, who feels herself to be at some remove from the world. And I think what I wanted to think about is, is, is how does she come back into contact with the world? How, which is, I guess, another way of saying how does she, how does she overcome her grief, but how, do, how does she exist in the world? And that, to me, is the way I'm interested in kind of putting reality on the page. Thank you so much. This was wonderful. Um, and thank you for your, your thoughtful answers. And Thank you, you guys, so much for your questions in this conversation. I can't <laughs> gush enough about this book. I'll have to edit this part out. It's too, it's too biased. But, um, uh, you know, St. Henry folks, you can grab a copy of Intimacies and a Separation. Both are weird art picks on our shelf. Thank you again, Katie. It was wonderful. Thank you so much. This is such a delight. <laughs> 